Due to the graphic nature of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussion of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. This is a prepaid collect call from an incarcerated individual at County Detention Center. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. Guess what time it is? It's time for crime! In this episode, we'll be discussing the Waddell Buddhist Temple shooting case. We hope to answer the following questions. Have you ever been wrongfully accused? Could you withstand a police interrogation? And should you consult an attorney after an arrest? So listen in and find out more. But for now, try not to end up on an episode unless you're a guest. Hey guys, welcome back. This is your host, Vanny. And this is Kat. Welcome, new friends, and welcome back, of course, our little stalkers. We hope to capture more of you today with this new episode. We're so excited. Before we get going, Kat, how was your week? Oh, it was it was good. It was getting a little hectic with end-of-month stuff at work, but uh, yeah, good times. Work is up and down, up and down. But I have to say, if I didn't do the line of work that I did, like getting patients their medications that they need, like like working with their insurance. I think I would have lost my head when it came to my personal stuff because I had the same headache with trying to get claims to get processed through the pharmacy because they're doing things incorrectly. So uh, I know there's a lot of jargon that you guys probably don't care to listen to, but (laughs) it's nice to be in the medical world when you have medical issues. (laughs) Yeah, you can help, help streamline it. Just like I'm sure it's nice to have a foot in the door for legal issues. So. How how's our gabs? She's doing good. She's going. She's uh, talking like she's doing the little baby talk, like the gaga googs and cookies. But sometimes I swear she's saying like actual words. Like it's something saying yeah, ama, and like no. Like it, it's very interesting. But this is not the only like my baby's considered a COVID baby, so apparently these kids seem to be a little more advanced. Not sure why. Wow, wow. She's gonna have some languages to learn, so that's good. Yeah, we threatened her with uh, she's going to have to join the spelling bee. <laughs> that's, like, that's why you punish kids nowadays, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, join the spelling bee. <laughs> oh, funny. Uh, so what case we got going on today? All right. Well, we got a great case for everybody. But before we get going on the case, let's remind everybody of the question of the week from last week's episode. And... I will read the question, and Kat, I'll let you have the answer, okay? Okay. What in criminal world saying is Acapulco gold? Wow, and our older people from the 70s are probably so going to know this answer. It's a, a high grade of marijuana from Mexico with a gold tint. I wonder if that's even an available like commodity now. Like, do people still request, I want the Acapulco gold, and would people even know what that is? Yeah, I don't even know you can get it because the plants have been so intercreated and genetically altered because what the pot leaf looked like in the seventies, that big leaf, they're like a third of the size and they've really worked to uh, get smaller leaves, but a higher THC content. It's, it's a whole big thing. Wow. Kaz, there's another world that you are living that I need to know. <laughs> I talked to somebody when we first started getting the dispensaries. Cause I was like, okay, 
How is this mm-hmm. even legit? So I was in talking to him and found out all kinds of interesting stuff. Like, you know, back in the day, you just had it to get high, but now they have products now that just the CBD and there's no THC and they have things to help you sleep, help your appetite, help pain. I mean, it's endless. Well, Kat, you're becoming an encyclopedia. I'm just glad you're on our show. <laughs> <laughs> I have never used it. I couldn't tell you about using it. We told, uh, we told our listeners this is an educational podcast. So it is. We're here to teach you guys some things. And I'm learning things about Kat that I didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> And I hope you guys are enjoying our confessions because uh, <laughs> those are fun too. <laughs> oh. Well, let's jump into the case. I'll have Kat read a little synopsis of the case and then we'll jump right in. Okay. Well, this one's a little different than what we usually do, but this is uh, where a peaceful place of worship turns into a crime scene so horrible, all for the supposed gold that was in the temple. How could a psychiatric patient be the one to lead the tip on an arrest that ended up being false? Yeah, that is a big takeaway. This is almost kind of like a movie, right? Like just from reading that alone, to me, it feels like this is fake. This didn't really happen. But guess what, guys? It happened in Arizona. Of course. <laughs> Who else is going to screw it up? Arizona. <laughs> oh, man, it's crazy. So crazy. It's like we have the craziest cases in some movies. I'm like, it could have been movies. Yeah, our our podcast could be at Arizona Blew It Again. <laughs> <laughs> and we haven't even talked about other states. That's, that, that's, that's the mind-boggling place. I've followed cases in Texas that are just as crazy. And I'm like, wow, Texas is a big state. So if Arizona has these crazy cases, I just probably just scraped just a little bit into the Texas cases. So. I'm excited for future cases, of course, because this is a never-ending podcast. Can you talk about true crime? It is, and eventually, eventually, we're going to run out of Arizona. So. I don't know. There's crime <laughs> happening every day, so <laughs> we'll just talk about newer cases. But this is about the Waddell Buddhist Temple shooting, and uh, as Kat and I were just kind of discussing this case prior to recording, I really feel like it should have been called the Temple Massacre because of some graphic things that we're going to be sharing about this case. So if you're not into listening to graphic things, um, you probably shouldn't be listening to our podcast because this is true crime. <laughs> <laughs> but some people can handle some true crime, but this they don't like the graphic gory stuff. So just a little warning for everybody. Yeah, it, uh, it was probably the most horrific killing that has uh, ever happened in Arizona. And it goes way back to 1991. Not only that, but it also was a massive manhunt that was like they were looking for who did this and they couldn't find anybody. And as you got to hear, it happens to be a psychiatric patient that leads some crazy tip to the officers. But let's jump into what happened before we get all crazy into all the good stuff. So I read this, the Phoenix New Times, they do great stories and they read a little bit uh, about what they wrote. I like the way their entry was because I think they did it really well. Oh, the new the New Times was fabulous, and especially Paul Rubin. Definitely give kudos to Paul Rubin. He I've used their their stuff for lots of cases, and he writes really good in depth stuff. Yes, and I like just how this this, this was Philip Martin, um, and he called it the tie connection. But I'm just going to read just the the big main sentence that starts off just their 
I guess, report on this. It said, perhaps not since the Manson family crawled out of the desert has there been a crime scene as horrible and baffling as the one Maricopa County Sheriff's deputies were called to on the morning of August 10th, 1991. I wasn't even in school yet. I just want to make a comment of this because this is the only time I could feel young. (laughs) But it also makes me old, so I don't know how to feel about that. I was already graduated. (laughs) (laughs) See, we're here to give a full circle to everybody, no matter what age. (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to point that out because I really appreciate reading something like that and how they were able to tie it back to the Manson family. And Arizona is also a desert. And where this temple was at, it was over out by the Luke Air Force Base. And so at the time in the 90s, in the early 90s, I mean, I would imagine that was like desert. There was nothing out there. So... Yeah, it was wide open. Wide open. And guess what's over there? Perryville Prison. So <laughs> I can just imagine like all those fields, what it used to must have looked like. And so in 91, so if you go now there, there's like a bunch of housing and warehouses, all kinds of stuff. Oh, going. yeah. It's wall to wall built up, but it's completely changed. Yeah, it used to be open. It was a lot of fields. We had cotton. They grew flowers out there. A lot of roses. Mm-hmm. It's huge. A lot of agriculture. I'm going to probably chop this up because I'm sorry, guys, I didn't learn Thai before I did this case, but Kat and I were discussing how to say this Buddhist temple. So I'm going to attempt it. I'm going to try and I'll I'll let Kat attempt it too. (laughs) I think you guys should listen to it. But it was called the Wat from Kunaram. Yeah, that's was kind of my take. Yeah, Wat from Kunaram. And again, I don't speak Thai. And so going forward in the podcast... I am going to refer to it as the temple. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the Buddhist temple. But there were nine bodies that were arranged in a loose circle on the floor in the common living room. So why the circle? Why? And then there was nine bodies. And the first thing I think of is like, okay, who's normally in the Buddhist temple? It's got to be these monks that are from Thailand, right? So let's jump into that. Yeah, because all the the, uh, victims were of Thai descent. Mm Mm-hmm. Makes sense because they they tried to tie this back to the mafia. The tie, like I didn't even think Thailand had a mafia, but I guess they do. They had a tie to the mafia that they were the ones that attacked this these monks out in this in the temple. Yeah, because like who else would go way out west mm-hmm. and bother a Buddhist temple? Yeah, and the the more devastating part was a uh, cook who worked at the temple comes strolling into work at about 10.30 in the morning on that August 10th in 1991, comes walking in the temple and just walks into this bloodbath of nine people shot in the back of the head. And then we'll find out a few of them were shot elsewhere too. And they were placed face down in a circle. So, you know, is we have some ritualistic thing going on? Do we have a they felt bad and didn't want the bot, you know, didn't want them looking at them. I want to just, this is my speculation from it is that when they walked in to like, you know, steal the supposed gold or attack these monks, they may were already in, in a circle, like praying together and just told them they can't move or leave. Cause they, they did use a weapon. They did use a gun. So my thing is like, I would guess that they were already in that position. They were probably praying or talking or having some kind of, engagement that they were already in that but it could be real it could be ritual too as well so yeah i don't know i just thought it was odd nine bodies in a circle Mm -hmm. gets my mind going hmm 
conspiracy, Vanessa. There's, yep, it's got to be a meaning. Got to be a meaning to that. But yeah, so obviously this person walks into this traumatized. You know, I mean, it's the sacred temple. You know, these are religious people and figures and mm-hmm. walks in and finds this. Right. So, you know, they'll get the police in here and they begin the investigation. And five of them were, were monks. One was a nun. One was the nun's nephew who was like, he was like wanting to become a monk. And then there was a temple employee. So these were all the bodies that were found. Yeah. I thought there was a high priest in there. There may have been, but from what I read was, it was, uh, oh yeah, the abbot. He's the high priest. Yeah. uh, Just, I mean, what a mess. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, there's like religious people and these are like monks for God's sake. Yeah. (laughs) Monks who have even less than your average religious person. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people go barefoot, for God's sake. Not just that, they they live off of some... I mean, there was a, a Buddhist monk that I had read not too long ago about he was living off of just air. Like, he wasn't wanting to eat or drink water. Like, he was just trying to live off of air, and he did most of it by meditation and prayer. So, the type of people that were, that were talking about that got attacked, and that's why I call it, like, I believe this case should have been called really a massacre than just a shooting. Yeah, and my my gut feeling tells me that because it was such a horrific scene and it was a temple, that they were afraid to use that word. You know, as far as like public and public right. perception. And it was it was already horrific enough that nine religious people, you know, would be killed in that manner. And I I just think that they were afraid to use it. Yeah. I mean, I could be wrong, but... Yeah, it was definitely a massacre. Mm-hmm. You know, I I can't disagree with that. You know, so but yeah, here comes the police, and they see this horrific scene, mm-hmm. and they already know the pressure's on to solve it because the community is going to be in an uproar, mm-hmm. as they were. Because who would do this? I mean, e- people of all religions in the valley were like, who would go execute monks for God's sake? Right. You know, so the investigation is on. Yes. And they get a most the most interesting thing to me is this whole tipster, right? This guy that was in a mental hospital, Mike McGraw is his name. He was a patient at the mental hospital in Tucson. He had called the sheriff investigators in Maricopa County because he said that he knew who did it and he was providing names. Now, my question to me is a question to me about this is like this Mike McGraw, how does he know these people that he's about to incriminate? Or say that committed this crime. Yeah, I don't know anybody that connected them. Well, like, how do you know these names? Where did these names come from? Like, I want to know that. I couldn't find that. I was trying to seek for that because I wanted to know, well, how did that tie Mike to what we were known as the, they, they called it the Tucson Four? The Tucson Four. So how is this guy in the loony bin up here spitting out four names from Tucson? And meanwhile, this happened in Waddell. So it happened over by... West Phoenix. So how is this all tied up? Like it, to me, like logically didn't make sense. Why didn't the cops think that too? Is my question. Yeah. Cause I think they were under pressure to solve this horrendous case. So, Ooh, we've got names. Let mm-hmm. us run with this. So Barney Fife and company near, 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 near. <laughs> so they go down and they scoop up in their dragnet of infinite wisdom Leo Bruce, Mark Nunez, Dante Parker, and Victor Serrate. Mm-hmm. So they were all arrested. They scoop them up, bring them downtown, and here comes the, what I like to think of as the unthinkable, but yet it happens. Yep. 
They take these guys and they interrogate them for about 13 hours. It's a long time. At which point, three of the men confessed in writing following the interrogation. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I read that, I said, hmm, I said to myself, self, does this at all sound familiar? Oh, yeah. So anybody that has listened to any of our podcasts, was there any other case that just popped into your head at that moment? I'm sure everybody's like, wait, there's a lot of things like this that's happening in Arizona. I know. And Milky just popped into my head. I was like, wow, this just sounds so familiar. familiar. Mm -hmm. If we could find Milky, please send her our way. If anybody knows her. I know. I would love to talk to her. We'd love to talk to her. I'd love to interview her. Yeah. So out of these four, poor Mr. Zarate maintained his innocence. God love him. He watched enough shows, <laughs> you know, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Deputy Fife here. They were able to figure out that he worked at a dog track, a dog racing operation. Mm -hmm. And he was hundreds of miles away and they have video footage of him at work. Imagine that. So Mr. Zarate is let out. You know, he's safe. But the other three are in here with this confession now, which uh, completely coerced, completely bogus, false. Don't even get me wound up on that. They're sitting in jail for like four months mm -hmm. while all this is going on. People were protesting. So there's one group, solve the crime. You got the other group who drives all the way down to Tucson and just scoops up four people and says, oh, you just killed some Buddhist monks. There was like no corroborating evidence. So at the scene, they found the gun. Well, we don't need to do any, anything further because we've got four guys. Okay, now it's down to three. We have three, three guys. <laughs> okay, the gun was never tested. It's propped up against some deputy's desk, you know, locked up in a room. Ah, what do we need forensic evidence for? We have confessions. Yeah, this is exactly. golden. Or the old golden confession. And I just, oh, it is horrible. And for anybody out there that thinks for a minute that this could not happen to you on some bizarre occasion, it so could. And the best thing I can say is no matter what, lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. That should be the only thing that comes out of your mouth. You're going to go to jail. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be pretty, but you're not going to talk your way out of it. Mm -hmm. And to sit there, I can't even imagine what they did to these guys for 13 hours to have three separate people write a confession to make it stop. Yeah. I, I don't know if you found this, but I found that they made them do the interrogation at a hotel or a motel. It wasn't even at the police station. They were doing the interrogations at a motel. Or hotel. I'm not sure. I want to say it's probably a motel. Oh my God. I wonder if it was down there. They eventually wound up at Fourth Avenue Jail. That much I do know. And that people were just protesting. Mm -hmm. Family members, like, there's no way these people did it. And yep, we've got we've got the four. So um finally somebody figures out with the murder weapon that finally got around to testing it. Mm -hmm. Somebody probably figured, it's probably the DA, oh, maybe we ought to test that gun before we go to court, you know, just to be sure. <laughs> so they finally test the gun, and oh my God, there's there's nothing that ties the gun to these four guys. Well, three now. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. They've got nothing. There's no fingerprints. There's not a hair or fiber trapped anywhere. Nothing. It was just crazy. So finally... Due to the pressure. What I was going to say about the, the murder weapon before we go on was that they found it in a car of a friend. It wasn't even the actual suspect at the end. It's a, a 
found it in a car of a friend. Yeah. And I'm like, so would you not move forward from there? But no, Mm-mm. you know, we've got our people with our, with our confessions. So here we have this 22 caliber rifle and it was found in, in the car of a 16 year old friend. And all of a sudden now they're like, oh, maybe we messed up. So they get with this friend whose uh, name was uh, Alejandro Garcia, and he was 16 at the time, Mm -hmm. and he started talking. (laughs) And so he mentions his 17-year-old good buddy BFF, Jonathan Duty. Mm -hmm. And where was Jonathan born? Thailand. Thailand! Ding, ding, ding. No one in Tucson was from Thailand. (laughs) Just want to throw that out. They may have been Nogales, might have been Sonora, but none of them were from Thailand. Yes. So the they said they went and had the that he had a twenty two caliber rifle and a twenty gauge shotgun that they took to the temple. Because they were gonna rob the gold. And I air quote it the gold. Yeah. And I'm like, if you're gonna if you're looking for gold, you need to hit the Vatican. <laughs> That's where all the gold is at. The wrong barefoot, barefoot, shaved head monks. Yeah, no. there, there is no Montezuma's gold in the, in the monk monastery. Nah. But was what was interesting was although they didn't find any gold, they did find twenty six hundred dollars and some AV equipment. So, and then Garcia claimed that Duty panicked because he thought one of the monks recognized him as the brother of one of the temple goers, hmm. and so he panicked. And he shot all the victims in the head with the rifle. And then Garcia, because I guess he felt left out, right? whatever, he shot four of them in the torso with the shotgun. So I'm sure we had a lot of blood. Oh, yeah. You know, four victims shot in the torso. Their objective was they didn't want to leave any witnesses. And what I thought was interesting was, according to Garcia, before they went, into the temple to look for the gold that didn't exist. Uh, they wore their high school ROTC uniforms. Oh, yeah. ROTC, come on. ROTC uniforms. And then they wore their boots to disguise their footprints, which this is probably about one of the only criminals that ever thought about their footwear. Yeah. Because criminals never change their footwear. They don't. That's even how they got them in cold blood was the footwear. But this snappy guy... They thought ahead and went, aha, we'll wear our ROTC boots and disguise our footprints. <laughs> the Iro on Cat's face <laughs> is priceless, guys. I just want you guys to know. We need to have a meme of Cat's Iro's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh my God. This, who does that? Also, it's very interesting that they were part of ROTC because that's usually like kind of like a precursor of like the army or the military branch, right? And so... One of the teachings they do is not to do something like this. It's like it's the complete opposite. It's like supposed to be protecting the citizens. Yeah, because ROTC gives you credit. And like if you take it, I mean, a lot of places can take it in high school. But if you take it in college, you actually graduate as a second lieutenant. You graduate an officer. So this is like the precursor to officer training. And you're at a Buddhist temple looking for Montezuma's gold. Yeah. Wrong place, sir. Wrong place. Bad game plan. Yeah. So you got these two doing that. You just swoop up four people in Tucson because some idiot who probably called you collect because he doesn't have any money in the loony bin calls and gives you some names. And for our, our younger generation that doesn't know what collect is, we used to have to call collect <laughs> <laughs> from a payphone. 
I can I can have a confession here when I used to do my uh, uh, collect calls with my mom. I needed to get a hold of her for something when I was in school. So in my high school, there was a payphone, and I couldn't call my mom directly because I didn't have a quarter or whatever. It was fifty cents to make that phone call. I would call Colette, and when it would say, like, say, state your name, I would say, Mom, come pick me up. I says, <laughs> it was hilarious <laughs> because my brother and I, we had the same thing when we were when we were at school. It was like we didn't, like, bother to carry change or stuff. We'd go to the old payphone, and we'd just dial collect, and when um, she, the operator would go, okay, and your name would be, like, Kathy, and then she'd be like, have a collect call from Kathy. Will you accept the charges? And my mom would be, no, and then she'd hang up, and then she knew get your butt to the high school. They're back from the game or wherever they were, go pick them up. And my mom used to joke by the time I graduated, she's like, I'm surprised that nobody, none of the operators called child protective services because you never accept the call (laughs) because you accepted a collect call. It was like four times the amount. It was horrible. When you called 1-800-COLLECT at the time when I was a kid, it was just a recording. So that's why I was able to leave that. Oh, we always got the operator. We just hit there was no for operator. operator. And she'd go, you know, AT&T. And be like, hi, I'd like to make a collect call. Okay, the number, you give them the number. And then it would be, hi, we have a collect call from Kathy. Do you accept the charges? Uh, no, click. <laughs> and then mom knew. That's interesting. Yeah, mom knew. That was like that. That just literally brought me to like, a, in my head, a cartoon. I, was, I don't know. I don't think it was a Bugs Bunny cartoon, but it was something in that era that had the switchboard where they would connect literally the yes. to one button to the other. Like that's exactly what I just imagined right then. in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And our and our younger generation is going, huh? Operator, phone, charges, what? What? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Gabs will never know. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, getting back to our horrific case. So they scoop up Dodie and Garcia mm-hmm. and they charge him with armed robbery and first degree murder. Mm-hmm. So Garcia, to avoid the death penalty, he pled guilty in 1993 and he received 271 years. That's a long time. He ain't going anywhere. So, but what was interesting was, of course, Dodie did confess because I guess he thought his smooth Thai charm was going to get him out of something. I mean, and I remember seeing him and, and, and video footage, and he was just very stoic and very just, like, angry looking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just remember I was like, oh, yeah, he just, he, just didn't, he just didn't look right. You know, Ted Bundy was charming. He's charming the press. This kid, yeah, not so much. But um, he wound up sticking to his guns, and he went to trial in 1994, and then he was convicted. And then his attorneys appealed. And they were claiming that his father wasn't present during the interrogation and his confession was non-voluntary because Miranda was improperly administered. Mm-hmm. I can almost believe that because if we go back to the 13-hour interrogation and they got those guys, grown men, to write a confession, this is a 17-year-old kid. Yeah, and apparently they did the same thing. They took Dottie and Garcia to a hotel, motel, Holiday Inn. That's the song. <laughs> hotel motel holiday inn and they did their interrogation there like what i mean i'm pretty sure when you went to your training as a cop they told you to go somewhere so that you can get a true confession not like let's butcher this up and like you know forget right you know it's to the point now i wish i could see you know and they didn't tape record stuff i wish i knew what kind of crap they were threatening these people with Mm mm-hmm 
you know, he, well, he went to trial, was convicted. He got 281 years. So now here come his attorneys and they go, well, he was 17. His father was never notified. He wasn't there, blah, blah, false confession. And his conviction was overturned in 2008, probably rightfully mm -hmm. so, even though, you know, he was in it up to his ears, but they just, they did yeah. it dirty. And, and I don't, I can't stand when they do it dirty. I, it just, it just, no, that is so wrong. Because if they do it to somebody who's dirty, they're going to do it mm -hmm. to somebody who's innocent. Oh, yep. wait, we've seen that. So his conviction was overturned in 2008 by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So they tried again in 2011, and the jury was hung. Don't even know how that could happen, but the jury was hung. So they tried him again in 2013. Now, this murder happened in 1991. 91. And so here it is, 2013. We're on his third trial. Yeah, convicted. All counts, all nine murders, no hesitation, drop the gavel, you know, he's done. Mm -hmm. He's done. The jury based its findings on Garcia's testimony and circumstantial evidence. And he was, again, sentenced to 281 years in prison, and he's currently at Florence. He's right down the street from me. <laughs> but I do have a little upside to this. Yeah. First off, at some point, Barney Fife and his band of idiots, uh, they found that McGraw was found unreliable and had a history of making outlandish claims. Oh, my God, you think? He's in the cuckoo bin. Oh, my God. Yeah, collect call from the cuckoo bin with names. And so um, was, they felt that McGraw was hospitalized as a psych patient uh, out of suicidal guilt over the killings. That's why they believed him. They thought somehow that he was involved. Mm-hmm. And that he was already in the loony bin, so like I guess they'd come back for him. But he was distraught and suicidal over being involved. The guy wasn't involved. He was in the loony bin. He has a perfect alibi. Yep. But that is just how sloppy it and was. lazy this investigation was. It boggles my mind. It just boggles my mind. So then after they decide that Mr. McGraw is, what's the word that comes to mind? Unreliable. <laughs> they uh, stop their focus on him. And decided to test the gun and do some actual teeny weeny bit of police work and, and solve the case. The crazy part is that that weapon sat in the detective's office for weeks because they thought they had the Tucson Ford arrested. That they just stopped even like continuing the investigation on the guns that they found. And the investigation, uh, the investigators extracted the false confession. They exaggerated the evidence that they had. Mm -hmm. They badgered them with leading questions and threatened them repeatedly with the death penalty. And they basically broke their will. Crazy. And I'm like, how do they get away with that? Yeah. It makes my blood boil that like this kind of stuff goes on. It happens. But in a wonderful karma moment and turn of events... Bruce and Nez filed lawsuits mm -hmm. for false arrest and the way they were treated. They got $1.1 million each. Yes. And Parker ended up getting two hundred forty k. Yeah, which I think is pretty good. I don't know. I would have got the $1 million. <laughs> um, I think one of the crazier things is that, like I said, this confession, so it says here in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, his Dottie's confession was illegally coerced. 
uh, Gary L. Stewart, a lawyer with deep knowledge of the case, said Dottie's confession never should have stood up in court. Yeah, I'm like, come on. Mm-hmm. And when I have to agree with the Ninth Circuit Court, that is sad. <laughs> that is a sad day, you know? And it was like, they were right. I, Wow, and how is this allowed to go on? But this ultimately led to the demise of the then Sheriff Tom Agnos. Mm-hmm. So he was the one running around with these nut jobs, believing a mental patient and all this other craziness. With the protests and everything, the Latino community was like, screw this idiot. And so it allowed uh, the uh, election of Joe Arpaio in 1992, like landslide, hands down. You know, I think I think Daffy Duck could have won sheriff at this point. He went out in disgrace, as he should have. A uh, fun fact that I learned here, I did not know that Joe Arpaio was a former DEA agent. Oh, yeah. I did not know that. He's been... He has been missed. I mean, he is Mr. Law Enforcement. He is not somebody that just makes it up. I mean, this guy has been like 50 years in the trenches. Mm-hmm. He knows his stuff. And another fun fact that uh, Dottie was not eligible for the death penalty because he was 17 at the time of the murders. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. Because I think if he had been an adult, with it being the monks at a temple, I think that he would totally be sitting on death row. And I guess execution of anyone for crimes committed while they're under the age of 18 was held to be unconstitutional in 2005 with the Supreme Court decision in the Roper versus Simmons case. They kind of put the kibosh on that. But which which doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, he took the, what is his name, Garcia. I, he would have fell under that as well because he was 16 at the time. Yeah, but I think he, he just pled and just... Exactly, because he took that... He, he uh, was trying to get out of even that idea of it being uh, being hung, right? Pretty much, pretty much get hung. Yeah. And now what was interesting was in the time between the Temple murder and then Garcia taking the plea and um, spilling everything on Doty, Garcia actually admitted to killing a woman who was camping in the Tonto National Forest between the time of the murders and his arrest. So Garcia's, yeah, that guy, that kid's a little off and he was few years older which makes me question like how did he even get accepted in the ROTC thing because I, I thought they did like an evaluation you would think so I would think but so. yeah so he's you know got another murder to his name a little on the positive side was uh, 2016 mark marked the 25th anniversary and they had a big celebration out at the temple and they honored the victims and community members came to the temple and joined, and it was um, a very good, positive exchange. So it worked It worked very well. And this murder, for people that like to follow this kind of thing, actually made an episode of The Forensic Files. Mm-hmm. And the, the title is Buddhist Monk Murders, and the release date was October 22, uh, 2001. So if anybody wants to try, I think it's on IMBD. So if anybody wants to track that down, they can watch an episode of the Forensic Files. And also there's a book on Amazon called The Innocent Until Interrogated, which I, this is a great title. The True Story of the Buddhist Simple Massacre and the Tucson Four. Yeah, so highly recommend that. If you're really into understanding this case. To me, I, I actually found a YouTube video of this guy talking about this case. And he was in prison with Dottie, and he said that Dottie always stated that he was innocent, that he never did anything. That's very interesting to me, that he felt like he was innocent, and 
he wasn't around or he didn't do any of it. And maybe he didn't partake in it, but he was still there. Yeah. And apparently didn't do anything to stop it. So there you go. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest takeaway from this case is like, do not talk to people. Do not talk to the cops. Please make sure and ask an attorney. Yeah, exactly. And I actually have a little confession on this case. Oh, I like this. <gasps> yeah. So back back in my nursing days when I was doing hospice, I was in the home of a little Vietnamese lady. And of course, she was getting close to end of life. And she used to go to this temple. But after the murders, she she could not bring herself to physically be on the grounds. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the days that I was at the house, somebody went with the van and got the monks. And there was like 12 monks that came to the house. And they opened the door and these guys got out shaved head, bald feet. They were in the orange robes that they wear, little Bible, little pouch. And they just stoic as could be, walked in the house, went into the bedroom where she was, closed the door. And I was sitting in the kitchen with the husband. And you just heard this giggle, 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 giggle. They were giggling like girls at a slumber party. And then when they finished, the door opened and they were just somber, straight face, marched single file, got in the van, bowed to me on the way out. And I was like, why are you bowing at me? (laughs) I didn't do anything, but just, you know, just did the traditional, you know, handfold and did the, did the bow. It was kind of an amazing experience to see them. It was the first time that I really got to see, you know, the live monks like that. Oh, you always see it on TV or in movies, right? So that had to have been a pretty cool experience. Yeah. But just to see them in person Mm -hmm. was was amazing. I would like to meet the Dalai Lama. So if anybody has connections with the Dalai Lama and can set up a meeting with me, please send them my way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just a group of people so in touch and so introspective and just so, you know, with one, with themselves and the world. Not a part of the world. Yeah. Like they're not part of the world. They're like in with themselves and in a spiritual higher realm. Exactly. Well, that's this comes con- uh, conclusion to our episode we hope that you guys enjoyed this episode and we captured all our new listeners to becoming stalkers as well but before we leave we do have a question for the week for you guys the question is what in criminal word slang is an eight ball Ooh, good one i like this i like our question because it's like what in criminal world slang it's like what in the heck <laughs> is an eight yeah, ball it's been in a lot of movies I'm sure a lot of you understand. It's still probably a common slang that used that. And I just don't know. But I just know from movies what an eight ball is. So we encourage all of our stalkers and new listeners to follow us on our social media, our website, um, and also share our podcast with other people that may be interested in true crime that would like to listen to us. Yeah, we appreciate it. Love all the interaction on the Facebook page. And um, if you haven't, I posted it. If you haven't seen the the John Hinckley interview, it's an interesting interview. So for the, the younger crowd can learn what that was about and the older crowd that remembers it. It interesting interview. For next week's episode, we'll be discussing the Don Bold case. Ooh, that's a good one. So looking forward to talking to you guys about that one and sharing that big case as well yeah oh i'm excited now (laughs) but until then we ask you guys to be kind to each other be nice and take care and we'll catch you guys next week absolutely all right take care stay safe everybody have a good one bye you too bye
Time for Crime is a podcast about true crime, prison life, and the opinions from the people who've worked on the inside. Please follow us and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcatching software. Help us get our voice out there. You can get more information about the podcast and this case at www.timeforcrime.net. Look for us on Twitter at Time for Crime One or on Facebook at Time for Crime Vanny Cat. Feel free to leave us a comment on our voicemail at 623-292-5871. We might even put your call on the podcast. Like it, love it, and share it, but please credit the hosts Vanessa Nunez and Kathy Delaney for their commitment to the podcast and service to the community. We'd like to send a special thanks to Nickel Nymph for the music in this podcast. We'd also like to thank Dave Kaiser and Peter Nymph for their support of the podcast and website. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you, the listener. Without you, we couldn't bring you this podcast. Take care, everyone.